Chapter Twenty Six, Part One of In the Schoolroom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Schoolroom by John S. Hart. Chapter Twenty Six, Part One. Attention as a Mental Faculty and as a means of mental culture. The illustrations which first led to a satisfactory elucidation of the subject were drawn from the eye. There are many facts in the history of vision which show that we may experience sensations and perceptions and other intellectual operations and may at the time be conscious of the same without giving them any attention or, at least, without giving them such a degree of attention as to have the slightest recollection of them afterwards. When, for instance, we read a printed book, the eye glances so rapidly from sentence to sentence that we can hardly persuade ourselves that we actually see successively every letter. We certainly have no recollection of having gone through such an innumerable train of conscious acts as the theory necessarily implies. That such, however, is the case is proved by the fact that if by accident any letter is omitted or transposed or put upside down, the eye at once detects the mistake. The fact is familiar to all. It can be accounted for only on the supposition that, even in the rapid and cursory perusal of a book, the eye actually passes from letter to letter, and gives to each a distinct notice. It not only notices each letter, but the position of each in reference to the other letters in the line, and even those nice diacritical points by which one letter is distinguished from another, as C from E, U from N, B from D, P from Q. This notice, however, is so slight, the transition is so rapid, that we have no recollection of it afterwards, and we can hardly persuade ourselves that such has been the sober and yet most wonderful fact. Take another instance. If, on the occasion of an evening assemblage, by a sudden movement of the gas pipe, any one should instantly extinguish all the lights in the room, and leave the building for a time in total darkness, and if, by an equally sudden movement, he should then restore the light to its previous condition, Every one present would notice the change and have a distinct recollection of it afterwards. Yet, every time we close our eyes in winking, that is, several times in every minute of our waking hours, we experience precisely this change from full and perfect vision to total darkness. But no one ever notices or remembers the fact of his winking unless he stops to make it the subject of special attention. Sight, however, is not the only means of illustrating this point. We are drawn to a similar conclusion by observing the workings of the mind itself in the act of volition. 
Whenever we make a single volition an object of special attention, we are conscious of that volition, and we have a distinct recollection of it afterwards. Yet, probably not one out of ten thousand, possibly not one out of a million, of our simple volitions, is ever known to us after the moment of its occurrence. Involuntary muscular action, every distinct movement requires a distinct volition. And how innumerable are the movements necessary to the accomplishment of any one of the ordinary purposes of life? We sit down, for example, to write a letter to a friend. The nimble pen dances from point to point over the darkening page, and when we reach the bottom, we have not the least recollection of having willed any one of those countless muscular movements which have been necessary to what, but for its everyday occurrence, would be accounted the greatest feat of legerdemain ever performed by man. Take, for example, the act of reading aloud. Every letter requires for its utterance at least one distinct muscular contraction. Some letters require several. Now it has been found on trial that we are able to pronounce more than a thousand letters in a minute. That is, during every minute that we are reading aloud, we perform between one and two thousand distinct muscular movements, and by necessity a like number of antecedent acts of the will, to say nothing of those other acts, not less numerous in the case of a speaker, connected with the general movement of the body in earnest gesticulation. Yet, after the hour's performance, what does the speaker or the reader remember of all these countless volitions? Nothing but the one general purpose to please, instruct, or persuade an audience. The conclusion towards which these illustrations point is objected to by some writers on the ground of the incredible rapidity which it attributes to our intellectual operations. Is it possible, it is asked, that we can crowd into such a space of time so many acts of the will, and that we are, at the moment when each happens, conscious of its presence? Is it not more probable that these rapid muscular actions are resolvable, in some way, into the law of habit? May they not become in some sense mechanical and automatic, so as to require no intervention of the will? Take, for example, the case of a person learning to play upon a musical instrument. The first step is to move the fingers from key to key with a slow motion, looking at the notes and exerting an express act of volition at every note. By degrees, however, the motions somehow cling to each other and to the impressions of the notes. In the way of associations, the acts of volition all the while growing less and less express, until at last they become quite evanescent and imperceptible. An expert will play from notes or from memory and with the rapidity of motion that is perfectly bewildering, 
while at the same time he himself is carrying on quite a different train of thoughts in his mind, or even perhaps holding a conversation with another. Hence it is concluded by the writers referred to, that in these cases there is really no intervention of that idea or state of the mind called will. The authorities for this hypothesis are among the highest that can be named in the history of intellectual science. Let us see how far the hypothesis explains the facts of the case. The most rapid performer, it is obvious, can at any time retard his execution until his movements become so slow that each one may be made, as originally it was made, the subject of special attention, and may be distinctly remembered afterwards. Now, according to the hypothesis proposed, we will our actions, and are conscious of both of the act and the antidecent volition, so long as their rapidity is confined to a certain rate, but, as soon as the rapidity exceeds that rate, the operation is taken out of our hands, and is carried on by some unknown power, of which we know no more than we do of the circulation of the blood, or of the systole and diastole of the heart. Such a supposition is about as reasonable as it is would be to say that a projector passes through the intermediate space, when it is thrown with such a moderate degree of velocity that we can see it in its progress, but, when it is thrown with such velocity as to become invisible, it ceases to pass through the intermediate space and reaches the goal only because projectiles have the habit of doing so. The hypothesis then breaks down and we are forced back to our original supposition, namely, that those actions which are voluntary originally never cease to be so, that when, as in the cases supposed, we retain no recollection of particular volitions, it is because of some law of our nature by which we are capable of recollecting only those acts upon which the attention has been fixed with a certain degree of intensity and for some perceptible space of time that the volition, in other words, is too feeble and too rapid to leave any impression on the memory. To argue that there has been no volition, because we do not recollect it, is as absurd as if it would be to say that there has been no muscular act, because in many cases we have as little recollection of the muscular act as we have of the antidecent volition. Besides, there are many other mental acts, as rapid as those which we have been adduced, so rapid that not the least recollection of them remains, where, yet, this mechanical or automatic hypothesis affords not the least explanation. Thus the expert accountant in a bank adds up a long column of figures with the same rapidity and ease with which ordinary persons would read a passage from a familiar author, and he brings out in the end the exact sum, which he can do in no other way than by taking note in passing of the precise character and value of each figure. 
yet at the end of such a process the accountant has no more recollection of those rapidly succeeding acts of the mind than has the musical performer of those countless volitions put forth in the course of a piece of brilliant musical instrumentation as to the objection that the theory attributes an almost inconceivable rapidity to some of our mental operations it may be answered in the first place that there is no reason surely why mind should not be capable of as rapid action as its handmaid matter and in the second place that our ideas of time are relative quite as much as our ideas of space and if the microscope has revealed a world of wonders too minute in point of space to be observed by the naked eye in whose existence we yet believe with undoubting confidence we may without greater difficulty believe in the existence of mental acts crowded into so narrow a point of time so rapid and transitory in their occurrence as to leave no impression upon the memory the facts which have been adduced then teach clearly two things first that by far the greatest part of what we do and experience and are necessarily conscious of at the time of their occurrence immediately fade from the recollection as shadows pass over a landscape and secondly that in order to the recollection of any act or object it is necessary that the mind be fixed upon it for some perceptible space of time and with some sensible degree of attention it is this indissoluble connection of the attention with memory this absolute dependence of the latter upon the former which gives the subject such far-reaching import in considering the means of intellectual culture how it is that we are able to exclude all subjects but one from the thoughts is not very easy of explanation it is obvious that we cannot do it by direct volition the very fact of our willing not to attend to a particular object fixes our attention upon it that we have however some power and agency in fixing our attention on one object and in withdrawing it from another is a fact within the knowledge and experience of every one whether we can explain the mode by which it is done or not we have the power of what the chemists call elective affinity we make our choice of some one of the various objects claiming the attention and fix it upon that and it seems to be a law of our nature that when we thus direct the attention to one object all others of themselves and by some natural necessity retire from the thoughts this is as near an approach probably as we shall ever make towards an exact verbal expression of a fact for an intimate knowledge of which after all every man must refer to his own consciousness this power of singling out and fastening upon some one object to the exclusion of all others in other words the power of attention exists in almost infinite degrees in different individuals 
the degree in which it exists, is the measure of a man's intellectual stature. No man can be truly great who does not possess it to a high degree. To command our attention is to command ourselves, to be truly master of our own powers and resources. The subject, then, becomes one of first importance in every kind of either mental or moral improvement. Its vital connection with the faculty of memory has been already suggested. Perhaps, however, this branch of the subject should be set forth with a little more distinctness. There are many vague, dreamy notions afloat on the subject of memory standing comparisons and metaphors, intended to illustrate its uses and magnify its importance, but not declaring with any degree of precision what it is. It is called, for instance, the storehouse of our ideas. The metaphor conveys undoubtedly a certain amount of truth in regard to the subject. At the same time, there are some important particulars in which the comparison, for it is nothing more, conveys a wrong impression. Experience teaches us, for instance, that recollections, unlike other articles of store, are from the time of their deposit undergoing a continual process of decay, and if they do not fade entirely from the mind, it is because we occasionally bring them anew under the review of the mind, and thus restore them to their original freshness and vigour. Dismissing, therefore, the metaphor, I shall, I presume, express with sufficient accuracy the established doctrine on this subject by the following statements, that of the great multitude of mental operations which we experience, by far the larger part perish at the moment of their birth, that others to which for any reason we give, at the time of their occurrence, some sufficient degree of attention, afterwards recur to us, or are in some way present to our thoughts, that this recurrence of former ideas to our thoughts is sometimes spontaneous, without any voluntary action on our part, and sometimes the consequence of a direct effort of the will. And lastly, that the capacity which we have of being thus revisited by former thoughts is called memory, while the thoughts themselves which thus return are called memories, or more commonly recollections. How it is that by an act of volition we can summon again into the mind an idea which has formerly been present, and which is now absent. We have the same difficulty in explaining which we had in explaining how, by an act of volition, we can banish a thought which is now present, or by the power of attention, can detain some one thought to the exclusion of all others. To think what particular thing it is that we wish to remember, is in fact to have remembered it already. It is an obtruse and difficult inquiry into which it is not necessary now to enter. 
a more important inquiry, and one connected directly with our present theme, relates to the different kinds of memory, and their connection severally with the faculty of attention. Quickness of memory is that quality which is most easily developed, especially in young persons. It is also its most showy quality, and the temptation to give it an inordinate development is strong. The habit of getting things by rote is easily acquired by practice. It is astonishing what masses of scripture texts young children will get by heart when under some special stimulus of reward or display. I have often refused to publish marvellous feats of this kind, not because I thought the accounts incredible, unfortunately they were too true, but because I thought they were a species of mental excess and they should no more be encouraged than bodily excesses. A little girl in my own Sunday school once actually committed to memory the whole of the Westminster Assembly's shorter catechism in three days. Six months afterwards she hardly knew a word of it. It had been a regular mental debauch. A few more such atrocities would have made her an idiot. College records tell us of what are called crammed men, that is, men who literally stuff themselves with knowledge in order to pass a particular examination or to gain a particular honour and who afterwards forget their knowledge as fast as they have acquired it. There is a well-authenticated instance of a student who actually learned the six books of Euclid by heart, though he could not tell the difference between an angle and a triangle. The memory of such men is quickened like that of the parrot. They learn purely by rote. Real mental attention, the true digester of knowledge, is never roused. The knowledge which they gorge is never truly assimilated and made their own. A quality of memory vastly more important than quickness is tenacity. To hold on to what we get is the secret of mental, no less than of pecuniary accumulations. The mind, too, like other misers, clings most tenaciously to that which has cost it most labour. Come lightly, go lightly, the world over. Knowledge which comes into the mind without toil and effort, without protracted and laborious attention, is apt to go as easily as it came. But... By far the most important quality of memory, for the practical purposes of life, is readiness. Like quickness and tenacity, it is to be greatly improved, if not acquired, by practice. It is in the cultivation of this quality that the power of a good teacher shines forth most conspicuously. Quickness and tenacity may be cultivated by solitary study, but readiness requires for its development a live teacher and the stir of the schoolroom and the class. 
Here it is that the art of questioning shows its wonderful resources. Repeated and continued interrogatories, judiciously worded, have a sort of talismanic power. They oblige the scholar to bring out his knowledge from its hidden recesses, to turn it over and over, and inside out, and upside down, to look at it and to handle it, so that not only it becomes forever and indestructibly his own, but he can ever afterwards use it at will, with the same readiness that he uses his hands or his eyes. This is what a skilful teacher may do for his scholars by a knowledge and practice of the art of questioning. Unfortunately, teachers in general find it much easier passively to hear a lesson than to muster as much intellectual energy as is necessary to ask a question. It was a remark of Bacon's that, if we wish to commit anything to memory, we will accomplish more in ten readings, if at each perusal we make the attempt to repeat it from memory, referring to the book only when the memory fails, than we would by a hundred readings made in the ordinary way, and without any intervening trials. The explanation of this fact is, that each effort to recollect the passage secures to the subsequent perusal a more intense degree of attention, and it seems to be a law of our nature, not only that there is no memory without attention, which I have laboured at some length to establish, but that the degree of memory is in a great measure proportioned to the degree of the attention. You will see at once the bearing of this fact upon that species of intellectual dissipation called general reading, in which the mental voluptuary reads merely for momentary excitement in the gratification of an idle curiosity, and which is as enervating and debilitating to the intellectual faculties as other kinds of dissipation are to the bodily functions. One book, well read and thoroughly digested, nay, one single train of thought, carefully elaborated and attentively considered, is worth more than any conceivable amount of that indolent, dreamy sort of reading in which many persons indulge. There is in fact no more unsafe criterion of knowledge than the number of books a man has read. A young man once told me he had read the entire list of publications of the American Sunday School Union. He was about as wise as the man at the hotel, who began at the top of the bill of the fare with the intention of eating straight through to the bottom. Depend upon it, this mental gorging is debilitating and debauching alike to the moral and the intellectual constitution. There is too much reading, even of good books. No one should ever read a book without subsequent meditation or conversation about it, and an attempt to make the thoughts his own by a vigorous process of mental assimilation. 
any continuous intellectual occupation which does not leave us wiser and stronger most assuredly will leave us weaker just as filling the body with food which it does not digest only makes it feeble and sickly we are the worse for reading any book if we are not the better for it there is an obvious distinction on this subject of some practical importance first suggested so far as i am aware by the scotch metaphysician dr reed between attention as directed to external objects and the same faculty directed to what passes within us when we attend to what is without us to what we hear or see or smell or taste or touch the process is called observation when on the other hand dismissing for the time all notice of the external world we turn our thoughts inward and consider only what is passing in the inner chambers of the mind when for instance we analyze our motives or notice the workings of passion or scan the mysterious and subtle agency of the will the process is called reflection this latter species of attention is one much more difficult of development than the former it is developed ordinarily much later in life seldom i believe developed to any considerable extent before the age of manhood developed by some professions and pursuits much more than by others and in a very large class of mankind probably the majority never developed at all this species of attention which is thus directed inwards subjective attention some would call it in other words the reflective powers are i doubt not capable of being cultivated much earlier in life than the age which i have indicated as the normal period of their development i am constrained however in opposition to many high authorities in education to doubt the wisdom of a precocious cultivation of this part of our intellectual system in all our plans of education we should closely follow nature who seems to have reserved the judgment and the reflective powers for the latest as they certainly are the most perfect of her endowments we who are teachers have chiefly to do with those whose powers are as yet immature and whose attention is to be cultivated primarily in its direction to external objects our business in other words is to train our pupils first of all to habits of observation in doing this it is of some practical importance to bear in mind the well-known difference in respect to memory between the objects of different senses whether it be attributed to the different degrees of perfection with which the qualities of bodies are perceived or to some difference in the qualities themselves or whatever may be the cause the fact is established beyond a question 
that the knowledge which comes to us through the medium of the eye is of all kinds of knowledge the most easily and the most perfectly remembered. We remember, indeed, the temperature of one day as distinguished from that of another. We remember the sound of a voice. We can conceive in its absence the odour or the taste of a particular object, but none of these ideas come to us with that definiteness and perfection which mark our recollections of what we have seen. It requires, for instance, but ordinary powers of attention and perception for a person who has one good look at a house to recall distinctly to his mind the ideas of its height, shape, colour, material, the number of stories, the pitch of the roof, the kind of shutters to the windows, the position of the door, the fashion of panels, the bell-handle, the plate, even the little canary-bird with its cage in the windows above, and the roses, geraniums, and what else may be fairer still in the window below. These are all objects of sight. In their absence, he can bring to mind and describe them with almost the same accuracy that he could if they were actually present. Now, it is impossible to obtain a like precision and fullness in our conceptions of a quality which we have learned through any other sense. We form, in the one case, a mental image or picture of the object, which in the other case is impossible. We can by no possibility form a mental or any other image of the song of canary, of the perfume of a rose, or of any other quality, except those which address us through the eye. Our conceptions of taste, smell, touch, and even of hearing, in the absence of the objects of sense, have a certain dimness, vagueness, mistiness, uncertainty about them. The conceptions of visible objects, on the contrary, are definite, precise, and most easily recalled. Hence the knowledge derived through the sight is, of all kinds of knowledge, the most accurate, the most easily acquired, and the most lasting. The practical application of these views to the science of teaching is too obvious to require more than a passing notice. Everything which the young are to make the subject of their attention for the purpose of remembering it should be represented as far as possible to the eye. If the object itself, on account of its bulk, or its expensiveness, or for any other reason, cannot be exhibited for inspection, let there be some visible delineation of it by brush or pencil. If the thing to be remembered be something abstract or unreal, having neither form nor substance, perhaps it may have, or the teacher may make for it, some concrete visible symbol, as has been done with the formulas of logic and the abstractions of arithmetic and algebra. 
these visible symbols on the slate and the blackboard give to those sciences all the advantages in this respect, which were supposed to be peculiar to some of the branches of physical science. A boy who has forgotten every mere verbal rule, both of arithmetic and algebra, will remember the formula x squared plus 2xy plus y squared just as perfectly and on the same principle as he will remember the face of the man who taught it to him. It is something which he has seen. Why has geometry, in all ages, been found to be of such peculiar value as a means of intellectual training? because of the visible delineation of its doctrines by diagrams addressed to the eye. How much more readily and certainly chemical science can now be acquired, since the adoption of the present mode of symbolizing its doctrines by combinations of letters and figures. Arguments, conjectures, theories respecting qualities addressed alike to every sense respecting qualities addressed alike to every sense respecting functions indeed not cognizable by any sense are now presented on the board in visible symbolic formulas which have the same advantage over the former mode of presenting the subject that the sight of a chessboard during the progress of a game has over a mere verbal description of the movements. The truth of this doctrine is strikingly illustrated in the present mode of teaching geography as compared with that once in use when a child, instead of looking at the map of a country, with its boundaries and other physical characters painted to the eye, had to grope through a trackless wilderness of description. The study will be still more improved when children shall be universally required to make as well as to look at maps. When, to the definiteness of knowledge coming through the sight, there shall be added that inerasable impression upon the memory which comes from fixedness and continuity of attention it is impossible for a child to draw a map without looking intently and with continued attention upon every part of that which is to be delineated the two conditions to perfect recollection are combined and the knowledge which is the result, is the very last to fade from the memory. Every teacher of small children knows how much more certainly they learn to spell by seeing than by hearing. You may repeat to a child five times over the sounds which make up a word, and he will not recollect it with half the certainty that he would on seeing it once. The same principle which leads to this result, and which indicates the propriety not only of looking at maps, but of making them in order to the more perfect knowledge of geography, will suggest to the thoughtful teacher the expediency of children's not only looking at words, but of writing them, in order to become perfect spellers.
Mental arithmetic has its fascinations. It has, too, I am ready to admit, solid advantages. Its advantages, however, I apprehend are not precisely those which are sometimes attributed to it. There can be no doubt, I think, that it helps to cultivate the reflective powers, that it requires, and by requiring gives, the ability to confine the attention to continued mental processes. But for making expert practical accountants, which is generally quoted as its distinguishing benefit, I confess I am partial to the slate and pencil, and to that venerable parallelogram, the old-fashioned multiplication table, in the shape it came down to us from Pythagoras. End of chapter 26, part 1